So we heard in our first hymn the words, Seeking to be lowly and humble, a learner of thee. Beautifully written by Robert Wormsley. They really sum up what we should be saying in prayer to God every day. Humble, lowly and ready to learn. Our text today speaks of this same humility. We see Jesus here in the midst of several dinners and banquets. So is this section all just about good social manners and etiquette? Well, if it was spoken by anyone else, then maybe, but when these words come from the mouth of Christ, we know that there's something else hidden in the meaning. So Jesus goes to dine with the Pharisees and lawyers, and not for the first time. Last time he ate with the Pharisees and lawyers, things didn't quite go so well for them. The last time Jesus ate with them and sat He instantly shocked them. They were appalled by his behaviour. He went in and sat at dinner without first washing. This isn't quite the same as your Gail Platt on Coronation Street with her rosy Sophie. Go wash your hands before tea. No, we're talking here about a more serious, a more ceremonial, more religious and certainly a more extra-biblical tradition that the Pharisees had adopted. So they'd called Jesus up on this matter and he was not happy. He did not hold back. He gives four woes to the Pharisees for their greed and wickedness, for their ceremony and focus away from God, for their self-righteousness and for focusing on making themselves look holy on the outside when they are anything but on the inside. He adds three woes to the lawyers also for heaping burdens upon others, for their hypocrisy and for the way they distort the word of the Lord. Seven woes shared between his hosts and yet they invite him back again. But of course we can question their motive. Are they just looking to catch Jesus off guard After all, they set up a situation just before the passage that we heard where he heals a man even though it is the Sabbath. So perhaps it's not the Pharisees who we should be commending for inviting him back, but rather Jesus for stepping back in to have dinner in such a hostile environment amongst those trying to ruin him. For humbling himself in order to follow the will of the Father, and teach this parable to us. So this time Jesus stays a little longer than last time. And blessed are we because of this, for what he teaches us while he's there. Before Jesus takes his seat, he just stands by and observes what the others do. He watches as the Pharisees and the lawyers sit in the best seats They'll put themselves above the next man, looking to sit in the place what they think they deserve. And Jesus then tells them the parable we heard. When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honour, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And we, he who invited you, 
Both will come and say to you, give your place to this person and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. Do we ever do what the Pharisees do here? Do we ever have the same mindset? Are we ever invited by friends to a get-together and think, well, I'd better go because, I mean, the party, the dinner, the banquet or whatever it is just wouldn't be the same if I didn't go. It doesn't just manifest itself as sitting in the best seat, but rather in us exalting ourselves in any walk of life. You hear the word exalt in this manner and you might be forgiven for thinking, I'm talking about shouting from the rooftops how wonderful you are. You might have an image in your head of somebody really arrogant with bravado, really thinking everything of himself. But the most damaging kind of self-righteousness is a lot more subtle than this. It comes when we turn up our noses to homeless people on the streets. When we decide we don't need to pray today because we don't really need anything from God today. But tomorrow, that test I've got, I definitely need to pray for that. And it comes when we don't talk to someone in our church, in our family, at a gathering of any kind, because... We see them as beneath us. We think that we don't need to talk to them because they dress shabbily. They might smell. They aren't very intelligent. They just seem a bit strange. I was recently at an event held by a small section of another local church at someone's house. And almost everybody was sat inside on the comfy sofas to enjoy their food apart from one couple. A couple who fit a lot of the criteria I just talked about. They weren't inside on the comfortable seats. They were outside and around the corner, hidden away on plastic seats, on their own, apart from the occasional visits by the hosts. And I didn't see a single guest spend more than 30 seconds with them. A quick hello, a quick, how are you? Not really listening to the answer. And that was it. Their obligation fulfilled. And they could go and enjoy the rest of the party. Not one person humbled themselves to allow that couple to be a real part of that get-together. Jesus isn't saying here that we should just do these things when it suits us that we should be allowed not to when we're relaxing and enjoying ourselves because, of course, we deserve it. He says that we should even do this at a wedding banquet. The most joyous of occasions, and especially back in Jesus' time. A celebration where we might think we can have the evening off to relax, to enjoy ourselves. But doing God's work never stops. It never takes a break. Being a Christian and living as Jesus has taught us is a 24-7 occupation. We must be ready at all times. So what should we do? Well, I'll take the words of Jesus as a starting point. I think that sounds like a pretty good idea. But when you're invited, 
Go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your hosts come, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honoured in the presence of all who sit at table with you. There are many different versions and meanings of the word humble or humility in the Bible. To bow, to trample on oneself, to become low, to make yourself low, to be bruised, to be lowly, gentleness, affliction and loneliness of mind. All relevant here, but in this instance, Luke is using the form of the word humble that relates to making yourself low. And it's not just a physical thing. It's not just about physically lowering yourself or bowing. Not just about humbling yourself in how you act at gatherings or elsewhere, even though that is so important. But it's also about how you think. How you think about yourself. Do you consider yourself to be low? To be less important than others? To be last on the list? I read a lovely little piece about Thomas Hardy earlier in the week. And in the height of his fame as a writer, when any newspaper would have gladly published anything he sent them, along with his manuscript, he would always send a stamped an addressed envelope, ready for return, should they decide not to publish what he'd given them. And another anecdote I came across was about the Scottish Presbyterian preacher, Principal Cairns, who, upon walking onto a train station platform, was given a huge round of applause. But he immediately stepped aside, let the man behind him through, and clapped him instead. He was so sure that they weren't clapping for him. It couldn't possibly be for him. He was sure it was for the man behind him. Both these stories show examples of men who, despite their great stature and fame, kept themselves humble, kept themselves low, never assumed that they were good enough. We must be low in mind first. Only then will we be low in our actions and the way we live by second nature. So it just becomes a reflex to us. Jesus carries on this talk, introducing a second parable. When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbours, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. Now this brings up a very philosophical talking point. Why do we do good things? Do we do them just to get good things done back to us? To get that lovely feeling of knowing you've helped somebody or done something good, whether it's conscious or unconscious? Certainly for Jesus here, the Pharisees and lawyers only ever invite that same crowd because they know their guests are then obligated to invite them back to similar do's in the future. They're doing their good so that they receive good back to them, so that they receive that gift as an earthly form, on earth, as the same gift given back to them. Do we find ourselves doing this too, in the same way when we were just talking about humility? It's not the -the over-the-top, obvious examples that are most dangerous, It's the subtle things 
that we don't even notice. We're not thinking about those who tell the whole country or even the whole world how wonderful they are, how they've given such generous gifts. I recently heard about a bishop uh, in America called T.D. Jakes, a leader of a 30,000-member megachurch in Dallas, Texas, who recently decided to give $10,000 to the Reverend Al Sharpton's National Action Network in honor of Martin Luther King. A wonderful gesture. But then he decided to release a press statement saying exactly what he'd done. Not quite so humble when you make sure that the whole world knows exactly what you've done by the modern version of shouting from the rooftops. What Jesus says here is that we, when we give, it should be to the glory of God and nothing else, not for our own personal gain. We hear elsewhere in the Bible as well that when you're giving, your left hand should not know what your right hand's doing. It should be in secret from those we know, lest we be exalted in their eyes and take the glory from God. And he adds that we should make sure that we give those give to those who cannot repay us for our repayment is not on earth the message of how we should do good things runs through the bible starting really in levitical law when farmers were told that they should leave one tenth of their crop around the edges of their fields so that those who were hungry who were passing by who couldn't afford to buy food for themselves could just come and pick off some of their crop and sustain themselves. This is always done in secret as such, as the farmer would never seek, never see who took this tenth of his crop. Likewise, he didn't collect up that extra tenth and then give it out personally to those who needed it. It was done in secret without him knowing. Of course, he gets a good feeling from knowing that he has left that crop to help those less fortunate. But he's doing it for the glory of God and to uphold the law. So is Jesus just upholding this same tradition? Well, later in Luke, in Luke 18, we see Jesus talking to a man who has everything and follows the law well. All these traditions, but Jesus says to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. You then you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. The law is important for Jesus, but he always asks for more. The law says 10% of your crop. Jesus says everything you own. There is always more that we can offer. We must humble, we must be humble, and we must avoid self-righteousness. For there is only one who is worthy. One name that is great above all others. One Lord. One God. No others. He is the only one who has ever been worthy to be self-righteous. He is the only one who's ever had the right to lord over others. To rule. To forego humility. Because he is the greatest. And what did he do? He gave up everything. He gave up heaven for earth. He gave up his palace and his throne for a stable and a manger. He gave up being all-powerful 
to become powerless at the hands of those he created. He talked to those who were real social outcasts. He laid hands on the untouchable, the diseased, the lowest of the low. He befriended tax collectors, prostitutes, murderers. He did the unthinkable of the time by giving women a voice of power, by listening to them. And for all these people, he was a servant to them. Not just talking to them, not just spending time with them, but actually serving them. He got down on his knees and he washed their feet. Master of all became servant of all. And shortly after that, he was humbled in a way unimaginable to us, taken by force. He was blindfolded and beaten. He was mocked. He was called the most dreadful things. His brow was pierced by thorns. He was led out to be nailed to a cross, executed among criminals, mocked before all, humbled to a point we cannot even begin to imagine. Hands that flung stars into space to cruel nails surrendered. Our most holy, most high, most righteous God, giving himself to die, humbled for us. And I have stood up and thought myself righteous. I have thought myself humble. At times I have thought myself even the slightest bit worthy of what he did for me. How dare I think that? How dare I think that I somehow have done enough? And how dare I think that I've even the slightest bit of say in my salvation? How dare I think that it's by my works that I'm saved? Oh God, let me never think that I've done enough. Let me never think that I'm righteous or holy enough to win my own salvation. For it is not through anything I have done, but it is through everything that Christ has done. He who made himself truly humble, who is now exalted above all, who is my Saviour, our Lord and Saviour. There were two sentences I purposefully missed out earlier on so I could bring them back here. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Like Jesus has talked about many times before also, we're not searching for earthly gain. We're not searching to climb the social ladder. We're searching for heavenly gain. To glorify God. And in doing so, reflect the love of Christ in our actions. We don't do things like these because we have to, because... If we accepted Christ as our Lord and Saviour and are following him, devoting ourselves to him, then we are already saved. But we do these things because God has asked it of us. Because if the greatest man to have ever set foot on this earth humbled himself to a point lower than any man in history, then what am I? Just a regular man going to do in comparison to that well quite simply I can't but I can ask myself a question how am I going to be a servant to everyone I meet today and tomorrow and every day not for my own gain here on earth but because I am a servant 
of the Lord. This is what we need to be thinking. Getting our selfishness and greed and arrogance out of the way and letting the love of God, the humility of Christ and the strength of the Holy Spirit flow through our every action every day. And I don't know about you, but I cannot wait to get out of these doors today and to go and serve him in all I do. I just want to finish by reading from Philippians 2, a section entitled Christ's Example of Humility that perfectly sums up everything we've been thinking about today. So if if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing that could be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, even to the point of death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen.